today on Kane and Rince's Sound of Play. I don't know what number episode this will be. I am talking to the lovely Barry Epoch Topping, who is the composer for the uh, open world murder investigation and exploration game Paradise Killer that's recently just come out on Steam and Switch to uh, rave reviews, especially of uh, the soundtrack. How are you doing today, Barry? I am great. I'm still kind of wired from, I mean, the game only came out on Friday and our our reviews have kind of been trickling in every day. So every day is like that kind of good anxiety feeling of reading a new (laughs) review and being like, oh my God, people actually love the game. So yeah, I'm still, I'm wired from it every day just now. It's crazy. Never experienced anything like this before. There are indie games over the last kind of, I don't know, five, ten years really now where the, the game hits, you know, it doesn't happen to every indie game, obviously, a tiny few but i'm thinking of the undertales of this world stardew valley celeste that kind of thing and the soundtrack is so beloved immediately that it gets just as much hype and and kind of praise from launch as the actual game itself i've seen as many good reviews of the soundtrack as as the game um i think people must just be totally hungry in in a fairly miserable 2020 for you know, a cheerful 80s and 90s revival. That's It's an absolute dream for me to even be like named alongside games like that, right? I mean, this is my b- biggest game yet. It's my first big game, I would say, and even big, you know, it's, it's still an indie. We're still a really small team. So when you're doing the work, you dream of stuff like this. I know that that sounds cliche, but <laughs> really I, I was. I was like, oh, all I want is this to be, you know, at least part, a wee bit well received. But people are, you know, connecting with the soundtrack in a way already that's just like, it kind of blows me away. I, I don't really know what to say about it most of the time. And the amazing thing uh, that I, I just caught you saying on a YouTube video is that did you only start work on this properly in, in January 2020? Yeah, um, I think b- because of the way it, it works, Wendy's, um, by the time they were like, yeah, we can do a full soundtrack, they were already pretty far into development. They had their vertical slice, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was six months really is all the time I had to do it. Um, I started demo in sort of October, November time, but... Um, yeah i really properly got into it in january and we were done by the end of may so it was really only five months where the bulk of the composition was done and that you know i was doing sound design as well so yeah it was a lot of work you hear so much about composers moaning about coming on at the end of a game project and music being an afterthought but i mean given the quality of the results is there you know would it be fair to say that that compressed timeline helped kind of focus you and maybe make something with more energy than you might have done if you'd had longer? Definitely. I uh, cannot tell you how much um, writing so many songs so close together enhances the whole, especially when you can come back to a song you know that you've not looked at for a couple of days while you've been working on four other songs. It's like the way all those songs end up bleeding into each other is yeah amazing it's good for me because i was so raring to go this is like a dream project for me paradise killer like i knew i could do it justice the thing about the vision of the game is like it's crazy it's like such a wild game and it's so ambitious and different you know i I knew i knew that i could do it justice so it yeah all that stuff kind of really galvanized me to be honest i was doing it part-time i had to take an hours reduction at my sort of day job to do this and it kind of gets to the point where you know i was 
at my day job, like demoing songs <laughs> for this. It's fine. I edit videos. No one looks at my computer. So, but yeah, <laughs> it, no, it was so good. It was it was very difficult, obviously, and it was a lot of work. But it was great just getting to sit down and be like, I know what I have to do, and really just doing it. Yeah, and 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 that reminds me. Uh, Andrew Pralo, the Outer Wilds composer, I guess that was last year's, you know, big indie game and the, the soundtrack was a smash hit as well. But he started working on that seven years earlier or something. And some of the tracks he wrote, you know, the majority of the work on them was done seven years and then he came back to them to tweak them seven years later. Whereas this is the opposite, isn't it? It's all so compressed. And you've got on, on the lead track, which we've just heard, uh, of course, uh, coming into this episode, uh, Paradise Brackets Stay Forever. It's the the kind of theme song of the game. It's the, the only vocal song on the game. And you've got uh, vocals by Fiona Lynch and some sax by uh, Fabian Hernandez and guitar by Thomas Temple. Um, did you write the lyrics for the song? I did. Um, we wrote the lyrics uh, sort of right at the start um, when I'd played enough of the game and read enough of the lore and understood enough about it to write them in a way that was referential to the game but not super obvious. I mean, it, it's quite obvious. It has the words paradise and killer in it, but <laughs> but I, wanted, I just wanted to give them a slight edge because something I really like uh, about Paradise Killer is there's like a this satanic imagery undercurrent to a lot of the stuff. So there's a bit in uh, Paradise Day Forever in the middle about like sort of goats and crowns and stuff and it was good writing that just a, just a tiny wee bit of black metal just a tiny wee bit i love that that middle eight with the lyrics i i put it up i take it down bring it back leave it on the ground in my imagination you're you're referring to you know it's a first person puzzle game essentially the player picking up an object putting it down and it just makes me think you know you're just having a laugh aren't you i mean this it's so silly and and it feels like with the whole project you can just be as absolutely silly and pay glorious homage to 80s synth pop and there's just sort of no embarrassment about it, seemingly. I think the game itself is so fun and so... We always say luxurious. Every time we were submitting demos and I was talking to the guys at Kai's and we'd always say, like, these songs are luxurious. And the game is like that too. It's very opulent. That vaporwave visual style is like that. I mean, it's... You think people know what vaporwave looks like, but none of these places ever existed. Like, no one has an apartment with a spa and, like, marble columns <laughs> in it. It's just... It's like such a... A, it's just when you think of opulence and luxury that's the kind of thing that comes up so yeah when i started writing these tunes they were no holds barred and towards some of the tunes i started to write towards the end that was the sails were fully unfurled at that point and it was just just go for it <laughs> my wife came in and herbie listened to some of it and uh, she is a an unapologetic fan of early Kylie Minogue. Yes. She just doesn't see the chintz and the cheese of it. She just she just loves it. But there's I mean there's so many influences across the album and it and it seems to me whether this game is and this soundtrack is post ironic or or ironic or not ironic at all, you know, in complete earnest. It doesn't matter. It's just fun and you know you you clearly love the reference uh, you know the reference material for the music. Everything we did in this game when we were making it and everything that went into especially stuff I was doing, it's all love. It's all completely earnest. Like we make this stuff because we love this stuff. And like, yeah, I can see it externally and be like, this music is cheesy, but 
I don't care. I love cheesy music. <laughs> I just I just love music. And uh, I got to put so much of myself into this music, which then was essentially putting so much of myself into the game that it's just, just a delight doing it. I sent you a note when we were setting up the interview about that it, it reminded me of, um, and this will lead into your next track, Japanese 90s video game soundtracks, um, where for some reason in the West, it, I, I, this is my imagined narrative, that we got embarrassed about the 80s, you know, the crazy hair, new romantics, Phil Collins. We just, it, we just did, we wanted to wash our hands of it. And it all seemed so, so cheesy and, and unfashionable. But somehow um, in Japan and especially in video game culture, the, the musicians and composers working as they transitioned from chiptune to Red Book Audio, they just went full out. Like they like cheesy was not a word that even occurred to them when it came, came to like Celtic folk or cheesy pop or slap bass on funk or just whatever it was. They just went at it full, you know, full throttle. And it and it reminds me of that. Um, do do you want to just intro what your what your next track is? Yeah, um, this next track is called <laughs> Underground Cave. It has such an unassuming name, right? <laughs> and it's from the PC Engine CD re-release of Dragon Slayer: The Legend of Heroes Two. Now, this is particularly funny to me because this Dragon Slayer Two has this. It, it's that in between eight and sixteen bit graphics. It's like really early sixteen bit graphics from the original PC Engine. It's one of those RPGs where you play in a tiny wee window on the screen. And for a game like that, with this simple RPG style, to have music like this is it, it's everything I love about that, you know, PC Engine CD, Konami, arcade games of the 90s that are just like so unrestrained in their production style. And I think this is a, an absolutely killer track from that era. Great stuff. We're going to listen to a little bit of Underground Cave from Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Heroes 2.
so that was Underground Cave from Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Heroes 2 uh, from 1992 uh, by uh, Falcom Sound team it's one of those ones where it's it's you know we don't get the individual credits probably unless you can you go deep uh, diving for them but uh, the one word i would use to describe that i would call it maximalist yes i take it that's your kind of thing yeah oh definitely everything about this is so aggressive the snare sound the guitar sound and then when the synth sound comes in it's just so needlessly aggressive (laughs) and i just i love that so much I, i love the idea like because the PC Engine CD itself is such a great thing. It's like we've made a CD attachment for this 16-bit console that can play CD audio. And this tune to me, that's what CD audio should sound like. When you put a CD in there and you see the spin-up ping, that's exactly what I want to hear. So I just I just think it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And is this a game that you have played or is it just a soundtrack you fell in love with? I've, I've played it, but I'm more into the soundtrack, to be honest. Um a lot of the PC Engine CD stuff has this. The PC Engine CD version of Ease 3 as well is quite similar because that's again, is like a pretty basic 16-bit RPG, but they just, the Falcom sound team just went absolutely ham on it. Uh, you know, why not? And have you always been into video games? How, how long have you been a gamer, basically? And, and how long have you had this side passion for video game music in particular? Uh, my dad was always into computers when I was young, and he had a Commodore 64 and an Amiga 500. The Amiga 500 and 1200 were kind of what I started playing games on. And that was, was a thing, it's like, you know, it's my dad's computer, so I didn't get to play it <laughs> a lot. But uh, my first console was a SNES, and ever since then I've been a huge video game fan, especially love... You know, any game that has like a Japanese slant, I love. I feel like, especially with stuff like PC Engine, there's still discovery there. I bought the PC Engine Mini recently and I hadn't played 75% of the games on that. And I love that. I love being able to find a new old game. A a lot of that stuff was really music that I loved and music that I listened to. So when I started, you know, playing music, playing guitar, playing in bands, it was something that was always there. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've just, I've, I've always wanted to write music for games. Um, I just, I just really love music. That's, I mean, that's wonderful. I mean, it's, you know, man after my own heart. With uh, Paradise Killer, interestingly, I mean, I love, you know, Japanese video games, Japanese video game music. Um, I hold it very, very dear to my heart. Interestingly, though, the influ- influences I personally hear in Paradise Killer, and they may or may not, you know, be actual, real, the, you know, things that you particularly listen to but it it reminds me more of western uh, 80s and 90s kind of pop music than it does uh, Japanese video game music in terms of the actual kind of instrumentation harmony that kind of thing even though like as I say that kind of full-blooded earnestness reminds me of video game composers from from uh, the the 90s but what I hear when I hear there's all sorts of synth tones and guitar tones remind me of like Luther Vandross, Tears for Fears, Michael Jackson's Bad. You know, there's some like Don Henley, that Boys of Summer guitar tone and David Gilmour and Mark Knopfler and New Romantics with Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and some In Excess. There's just so much in there. Um, And I guess saying that actually, there are a couple of tracks that do remind me of, of things like Streets of Rage and Outrun. I mean, it's just it's just everything. And then Sonic the Hedgehog, but New Jack Swing, and it's just all in there. How did you manage to, to cram so much in there? Well, again, more background. Uh, I played in a wedding band for f- five or six years, 
and we always played the hits but not the obvious hits like we played a lot of deep cuts and so much of the music we played was stuff like AOR stuff like well yeah we played Luther Vandross we played Peter Gabriel we played Toto we played Phil Collins like we played all the 80s hits and playing that music for so long I mean I mean I've played Erasure songs hundreds of times <laughs> at weddings <laughs> and that stuff I love the sonic palette of the 80s so much and that so that's always been there um but when I came on to Paradise Killer that kind of is the sounds of the 80s and the sounds of Japanese video games through a more kind of jazz, jazzy, jazz fusion, AOR kind of lens. Like, I love Steel, Steely Dan is probably the one artist that underpins this soundtrack the most. And I'm not sure a lot of people would pick up on that, but it was certainly what I was listening to the most at the time was listening to a lot of Steely Dan, a lot of Toto, uh, a lot of Debbie Brothers. So just tons of AOR, which again is quite... Again, I don't want to say cheesy, but it's very earnest music. I don't know if, actually, talking about Steely Dan, I'm not sure if Donald Fagan would say he was earnest, but I believe in my heart that <laughs> Steely Dan is 100% earnest. Well, one thing that uh, that characterises Steely Dan, and historically Steely Dan are the band where, or I know them as the band where they, studio perfectionism, right? Yeah. So... In the 80s, all these new digital tools became available, um, drum machines, all sorts of synths, uh, guitar tones and things, uh, digital mixing became available to artists. And the 80s has a bad name historically because some people think it ruined the careers of like Stevie Wonder, Bob Dylan, or people who went into the 80s making amazing music, having made some of the best music of all time. And then they just you know, went crazy with the, the the technology or was it the cocaine and the drugs um, oh. and lost themselves, essentially lost their sound. And yet there were artists who thrived at that time um, because of those tools and because of just this explosion in possibilities in the sound. Um, and you're taking that, you know, if, if Steely Dan underpins Paradise Killer, then it's that perfectionism. For me, what I hear is that perfectionism of tone, you know, guitar tone and placement of this drum here, but this guitar note here and this sax solo just wailing over the top of it. But it's got a bed into the track, that kind of thing. Yeah, I tried to push the arrangements as much as possible where, it, you know, not not getting to a point where I was like, when's this ever going to be done? But being able to try and detach from the song and still listen to it critically, because I'm sure you know, you listen to a song a million times and especially when you're mixing something, it gets to the misery. (laughs) (laughs) You approach misery with it, basically. But I really, really tried to keep myself engaged and excited with the music, and I think that helped, you know, the arrangements massively. And in terms of not being scared to fix a tiny wee bit, because I think every, every part of me is like, it's fine, it's fine. But I indulge myself a lot more on this because even though I say we finished in May, we were content complete in May, but I still had a couple months there to use for whatever I wanted. And yeah, like I did a couple of tiny little things to mixes that really improved the song overall. You know, I had a trombone slide here and, <laughs> you know, it makes makes the tune sometimes. Well, let's, uh, let's listen to Go Go Style. I have a feeling that beyond Paradise, this is going to be a lot of people's um favorite track from the soundtrack it's certainly one of my favorites uh, so yeah let's check out go-go style from paradise killer
That was uh, Go Go style, um, funk meets disco meets video game with a big 90s flavour. What I love, what I'm jealous, look, I'm frankly, I'm jealous. I played in wedding bands. <laughs> I would have loved to get back to music production, but it, it slipped away from me. But the idea of having a video game project where you can just indulge in sax, guitar solos, the, the, the cheesiest synths you could possibly want, it sounds like heaven. It was I think Gogo Style is the track when I was writing it. Um, the thing about 80s and 90s referential stuff is it's very easy to stray into pastiche, right? And it's, you know, for me to say this, like, obviously take it with a pinch of salt, but when I was writing Gogo Style, I thought this is becoming original in a way that it's referential of the things I wanted to do, but it's becoming something new. As a combination of these styles, it's becoming something new. And that, for me, when I was writing the song was when the soundtrack started to get really exciting because I was like, I know I can push this into something. And again, I don't want to say original because something that's so referential, people would debate whether that's original, but I was really happy with the combination of sounds and where it was going and the kind of music it was becoming. Like I said, having elements of funk, having a video game element to sort of cement it as a video game song, but still having small flourishes of stuff like disco, vaporwave, AOR. Because, I mean, this is a song that has a sax solo in it, also has a shakuhachi in it, <laughs> and, like, some kind of panpipe synth stuff going on, and, like, that kind of uh, clav and bass breakdown in the middle. There's a lot going on for a three-minute tune. Yeah, it, it's wonderfully it's wonderfully dense. I, I absolutely love it. And... Um, what what is originality? You know how much truly is original. At the time we're recording this, um, riding high in the charts, uh, I think I believe it still is, is BTS's Dynamite, uh, the the Korean pop band, and it's just pure disco. They literally in one part of the video, which has been seen four hundred million times in a day or something, whatever it was, there's literally a giant sign that says disco in it. You know, Dua Lipa just released uh, her album, which I think's great, and it's just pure disco. So I love that album. You seem to have landed uh, at exactly the right moment alongside some of the biggest pop artists on the planet to sort of say, "Who gives a who gives an f that." It, it you know that disco happened theory you know it happened and died who cares let's just let's just have it back it's important for me that music has to be fun right and like I, I love pop music too i always have and to see disco make a resurgence is good because new disco has been bubbling away under the surface for the last close to 10 years now um when i started getting into new disco and synthwave there were a lot of great artists uh, there's a great artist called grum who's scottish actually he did an album called Heartbeats and that's just turned 10 years old and that was like a real new disco staple for me in terms of how disco was coming back in the sort of electronic and dance music scenes and I absorbed so much of that and I loved it and it was great because at a time when I was doing a lot of DJing and going to a lot of clubs, people were mostly still playing house, tech house, techno and when DJs and producers like this started coming up who were writing melodic dance music again that was just so good and then when Daft Punk brought out Random Access Memories that was really like new disco arriving but through a more authentic slant because your average home producer doesn't have access to the kind of money that Daft Punk does <laughs> and Daft Punk made you know there are tunes on that album that are fully AOR songs and then 
that the way I saw that is that kind of bled over into more pop music and then synthwave kind of came up and that bled over into pop music there are songs like uh, I always say uh, do what you want by Lady Gaga that's just a synthwave tune mm. and it's a great tune and I love it and so much synthwave infected the mainstream and it's not really going anywhere because disco's been around for a while in pop music now but it's like you were saying about Korea there was a lot of Korean bands who were doing like great disco tunes i remember a cara song from a few years ago called mamma mia that's just a proper disco stomper <laughs> and it's so good to see like upbeat melodic music getting such a big resurgence and i think a lot of that stuff has obviously influenced the big producers producers like even like max martin yeah and they're doing a lot of kind of disco stuff but of course we know i mean on the synthwave side of things that's something that video games especially the indie video games scene has kind of taken ownership of, to some extent, disclosure. My other, my part, of my main client is Laced Records, and we put out the Hotline Miami vinyl a couple of years ago, which did extremely well. Uh, and that game came out in 2012 and was sort of heralded as, you know, this is the, I don't know, the, it didn't start Synthwave or anything, but it was a, a compilation essentially of artists a cool underground artists on soundcloud that the designers really liked the sound of some of it was hip-hop some of it was um you know really drugged out stuff but some of it was this fantastic synth wave and they doubled down for hotline miami 2 then you get games like fury um and now there's a whole you know raft of games doing that that synth wave sound and i should imagine that has bled over now that video games culture is so massive and does intersect with, you know, pop artists and hip-hop artists and everyone plays games and everyone listens to the music and and it, it's just a big melting pot, isn't it, at the moment? But but particularly that synthwave sound feels to me like it belongs to video games just a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, the synthwave scene was around before them, but Hotline Miami and uh, Kavinsky's Night Call from that Drive, movie Drive yes, and the yeah. movie Drive itself, those two things were what pushed the synthwave scene over, you know. And now the synthwave scene is huge. I see, I see uh, on synthwave producer groups and forums people who were previously producing EDM being like, oh, I'm switching over to synthwave. <laughs> what, it's such a weird thing to say. It's like, right, I'm jumping ship. EDM's not popular anymore. But I think, because I was, I, I, before I came to Paradise Killer, my last project was I put out a synthwave album. It's it's kind of loosely synthwave. It's very video game influenced. But like I was I was getting a bit down about it when I was coming towards the end because it was when synthwave was getting really cynical. I think Muse Muse put out an album that was like, oh, we're wearing shutter shades and there's a you know projected highway behind <laughs> us and all that stuff. And I was I was very like, ugh, have I missed it? Have I missed my chance to make an impact? But again that stuff doesn't matter it doesn't matter because if you know i put it out and it did really really well and i was just delighted that people liked it but it was it was weird how and i imagine it's worse now how saturated the synthwave scene got because it just became popular and it's such a nerdy thing to become popular <laughs> as well well is does this take us nicely onto one of your tracks that we might have brought in later is it vanguard vanguard x1 was from it's not strictly from a video game right but it's from an album i put out a couple of years ago um and this was written at a time where i was looking for music and games and another dream project for me would be writing music for a shoot 'em up i love shmups love them i would 
love to work on one. So at this point in time, I was like, I'm just going to start writing hypothetical shmup music. I'm going to write a soundtrack for a game that doesn't exist. And uh, this track, Vanguard X1, was one of those. And this is a song that's very much inspired by things like Gradius, Gaiden, the later Darius games, any sort of Salamander 2 as well, any sort of arcade Sega Saturn PlayStation shoot 'em up, but viewed through a synthwave lens. And yeah, that's what I came up with for this tune. Excellent. Let's give it a listen.
very high octane. <laughs> At the end, it has a guitar solo followed by a synth solo followed by another <laughs> guitar solo. Just imagine you in your home studio, just like bouncing up and down, going, come on! I, I'd, um, I have neighbours that overlook my studio room, so I dread to think <laughs> what, what they think of me, so... Okay, so that was Vanguard X1. It's from a theoretical shmup, and it's by Barry Epoch Topping. Is uh, are you are you hedging with the with the Epoch nickname? Like you're not quite sure whether you want to tip over into an artist name just yet, or you? I'm moving away from the artist name. Um, it's, it's it's tricky. It's a tricky thing to do <laughs> because that I've got a small. I did all right with that album encounters like it. I sold quite a bit. It got a lot of streams. It got a lot of popularity on YouTube, and that was under the Epoch name. So I don't want to jettison that completely, but I will eventually. So yeah, I'm in that weird transitionary period <laughs> from artist to real name. I think a lot of people probably go the other way. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, who knows what will come from uh, from Paradise Killer? But uh, yeah, I fear you may accidentally be st- be stuck as Barry Epoch Topping and have to. Uh, people think, is that your middle name? Is that your nickname? Is that what your mum calls you? It's the time machine for Chrono Trigger. That's, of course. that's all I have to tell people. So, <laughs> but no, I'm I'm happy with that. That's fine. I'm I'm happy to stick with that moniker. It's not so bad. Good stuff. Um, so the the next track you picked out, uh, "Hot Blooded Man," uh, uh, "Submarine Castle" from Mystical Ninja, starring Goman. Now that when I saw this, this is from 1997. The N64 potentially gets a bit of short shrift amongst i guess video game music fans and you know a lot of people know about the the technical limitations of the platform and i was thinking about you know you were very uh, effusive about uh, the pc cd engine and obviously clearly you're a big lover of chiptune um and the n64 sits in this really weird space doesn't it in terms of music technology it does um there are there are not a lot of N64 soundtracks that I hold in high regard, but the two Goemon games for the N64 are my two favourite video game soundtracks, hands down. They're a real testament to what Konami were doing at the time and the amount of talent they had on staff. Not just, you know, their composers. I love those games. Both the Goemon games for the N64 are fantastic. Uh, this one, Mystical Ninja starring Goemon, this is my Ocarina of Time. Like, 100%. And yeah, it's weird. The N64 is not something I have a massive affinity for. I think it was because it came out, at, it was expensive and the games were really expensive. So this was a game that I could only play through renting. And I think I did that thing where you rent a game from, you know, four times in a <laughs> row from Blockbuster until you complete it. And this was one of these games because N64 games were so expensive, you only ever got them at Christmas. So that's part of the reason I don't have a huge affinity with it. And also, I think it, it came at a time much like the Game Boy Advance, where people had to do a lot of figuring out on the N64 that they didn't really have to do on other platforms. Yeah. So, yeah, I, just, I mean, it's, it's a great console, and there are a lot of amazing games for it, but these two, in this game in particular, is an absolute gem for me. And the song I've picked here, I tried to pick a song from this soundtrack that had all the stuff in it that I love. Um, I'm obsessed with the Hammond organ, right? And I love prog, I love prog rock as well, but those things are unrelated. My obsession with the Hammond organ came from this game. Really? Yeah. So no, you weren't listening to you know soul and stuff from the from the sixties and seventies. It came from a Japanese nineties video game. It did. It's the way this game uses sound. It has a combination of like this like big 
bombastic brass and Hammond organ and these Japanese sounds too. Like I love the shamisen too, uh, the shakuhachi as well. And Goemon games are just that. They're a blend of like, uh, like classic Japanese folk music with a touch of enka meets like Western music, you know, Western funk and bits of prog and bits of rock. And this track is great because it pulls all that together. And interestingly, the dungeons in this game had, they have like dynamically changing music. Not in the way that uh, Nier does, but when you're going through a dungeon and you hit, hit a certain trigger in the dungeon, when the music gets to the next loop point, it makes the next part of the song happen. So there are three, three phases of each dungeon's song. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever came across that. I think for 1997, that's... A pretty early example of dynamic music like that. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's something. Talking to various composers I've interviewed recently, um, Chance Thomas uh, has been in the game for a long, long time. He's literally written the book, and he was talking about them being able to do interactive music things way back in the '90s. But uh, they're just kind of maybe not being the appetite for it the imagination so so the few examples where it gets really pulled off um well stand out a lot i think um let's take a listen to hot blooded man uh, brackets submarine castle Okay, that was Hot-Blooded Man, uh, Submarine Castle from Mystical Ninja starring Goemon uh, on the N64 from 1997. Um, a word that's come up twice now, Barry, is f- fusion. Yeah. And I think, if anything, you know, 
from this interview, from your your uh, work on Paradise Killer and your your clear deep love of all these games, is that fusion is the real key word, isn't it? And that that's something that that we, as we've discussed, the Japanese uh, video game composers sort of kept alive, didn't they? They they carried that idea of fusion all the way through even during the years and decades where uh, video games were kind of written off as silly and childish and, you know, toys. And even a game, you know, like Goemon, ostensibly from the outside, you look at the cover art, you glance at it, you don't know what the game's like. You you think of it maybe as a kid's toy or whatever, even the N64 itself and the coloured pads or whatever. But there's serious musicianship here and dedication to, as you say, fusing together uh, styles of music. My favourite fusion band, when I say fusion in this sense, I mean jazz fusion, right? But jazz fusion is such a broad term anyway. What does it really encompass? My favourite fusion band are a band called T-Square, who are Japanese. Masato Honda, who is the sax, well, one of the sax and iwi players for... Will your listeners know what an iwi is? I don't think so, but do tell us. An iwi is a breath-controlled synth instrument. It's like a synthetic wind instrument, which is... Another band I love actually steps ahead who are another jazz fusion band and they did an album in the 80s called Magnetic which I really really recommend that's a jazz fusion album that leans into 80s production heavily so if you like 80s music and jazz fusion <laughs> listen to that Steps Ahead album Magnetic um, so Masato Honda he played the Iwi in T-Square which is yeah it's just like a crazy synth that you blow into um, and T-Square have always made music that sounds like video game music in the way that Falcom Sound Team, Konami Sound Team and Capcom Sound Teams were making stuff that sounded like Fusion. And so much so that a lot of people that are in T-Square make game soundtracks now, like the Mario Kart 8 soundtrack, for example. Most of that band is T-Square. Really? That's not even a Yeah, that's not even a departure <laughs> for them. It sounds like a T-Square album when you really think about it. It's funny because in video game music, I, I think about orchestral music, I think about um, chiptune, but there's prog rock and jazz fusion are so influential in video game music. Um, and that was kept alive in Japan and it's it's now washing back and forth across the, the oceans in terms of influence um, but but you don't see people explore that much or talk much about jazz fusion and, and prog rock. I mean, we are right now, but but I I just don't hear it in too many other places, which is kind of a shame. But these bands you're talking about, these jazz fusion bands, and uh, we mentioned earlier uh, in private uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra, who this incredibly influential um, band in Japan, uh, who are sort of tied up with the history of video game music. In Japan, video game music is pop music to some extent isn't it it is and the sort of venn diagram between video game music and anime music as well so there are a lot of people who are writing for anime who are now writing for video games which you know it makes sense it's, it's baked into the culture they are almost music that sounds like that even a lot of j-pop and a lot of j-rock and stuff like you know visual like even Visual K, for example, there's a lot of what I would say is video game melody and harmony within that. And it comes from, I mean, there's a hunger among video gamers, I think, for strong melodies, strong harmonies. We've had many years now of, um, well, people blame it on Hans Zimmer, but it's not just, you know, it's not his fault per se. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. more the fault of creative directors wanting a Hans Zimmer-esque sound, but, you know, very backgroundy, ambient at times. 
um, even though Ham Zimmer is a master of melody as well. But, uh, uh, you know, very Hollywood-esque backgroundy music, very serious scores, orchestral scores as well. And it seems to me that, that fun was kept alive in Japanese video game music all of this time. And it, and it allows something like uh, Paradise Killer to just, you know, land with an absolute firework explosion in 2020 where people are like, oh, this is great. Even though that sense of fun and experimentation and fusion never went away in certain parts of the world, that's that's kind of what's what's brilliant about it. That makes me very happy to hear that. That's, you know, everything that I tried to achieve. And I just wanted to make sure that the music in this game was something that I would want to hear in a game that I wanted to play. And like, I love most video games. Like if I buy a game, I'm, I play it to completion and I tend to like most of the games that I play. But the games that get me really excited are fun, colourful, vibrant games that do something surprising. And I, I think hopefully that's what the Paradise Killer soundtrack is. It's surprising. The way that the music exists in the world is you go around and there are these kind of pink neon broadcast towers and you you examine them and you get a tape of a track and then you can build your own playlist and that's really your investigation playlist. And I hope that when people get a new track, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that kind of thing. Because even though you know it's umbrellaed by a fusion genre, there's a lot of different styles in there. And so, yeah, I hope that the music's fun, surprising. Absolutely. You say colourful. Ironically, you did the soundtrack for a game called uh, Jack Be Nimble. Is that right? In 2018, which is a uh, Game Boy style. So two tone of two tones of green, infinite runner. Yeah, um, a bit of background on this game. I made, made this game of one other guy. He really made most of the game. A guy called Sean Noonan, who at the time worked at Ubisoft. He worked on Watch Dogs, Far Cry. He's a great level designer. Um, and he went on to he worked on uh, Star Citizen, and then he went on to work on Gears Tactics. And now I think he's moved over to doing some indie stuff. But I su- shout out to him, super talented level designer, great guy. And he made this game really as a passion project because it started as a I might have been Ludum Dare, one of the game jams where you had to make a Game Boy style game. So he made this Infinite Runner, and I did a bit of music for it. And we really thought it had a lot of potential as a nice wee idea. And this is a game that we knew was never it was never going to be Flappy Bird because I'm sure that was Flappy Bird time, was it? But we were like, sure, let's make a cute Game Boy game with like a kind of Castlevania style influence, and you know, let's because again, I keep saying I love things, but I loved the Game Boy. I mean, I had a Game Boy and I played Mario Land Two, for example, played that nonstop when I was wee. So yeah, this was another game that was a great chance for me just to do something that I really loved which was an 8-bit style kind of chiptune influenced by stuff like Kirby, Mario, and early Castlevania games. So this song is called Athletic, which is a Mario thing. Um, (laughs) And it's from the level Grassy Grove. And yeah, it's a kind of really cheerful Kirby-style MSX meets NES meets Game Boy kind of tune. Great, Let's, let's give it a listen.
So that was Athletic, Grassy Grove from Jack Be Nimble uh, by Barry Topping. So the, the chip tune, I've been going back and forth on this. Chip tune was not my uh, era of gaming. I kind of came to video game music and video games properly the first time around 97 with Final Fantasy 7. I'd played loads before that, but that's kind of when I fell in love with it. I tell a lie, Streets of Rage 2 super caught my ear before that as well i guess but that's fine final fantasy 7 i have to say what a place to start though. <laughs> yeah well and streets of rage 2 which is in some ways as much yeah. techno as it is chip tune but this this track is properly retro chip tune and i would say that that was a dip bit different from what i've been calling post chip tune which is where where people are using the aesthetics of chiptune, the oral aesthetics, you know, textures and instruments, but it's all software synths and they're they're breaking the rules of chip, you know, whichever console you'd be trying to emulate, whether it's the Game Boy the NC, uh, or the SNES or whatever. It doesn't matter what things are called, but but there's a strong love for chiptune. That's its own scene now, isn't it? So with this, how pure chiptune did you want to go or did you not worry too much about it? I mean, it does seem like it's slightly purer chiptune sound than some other soundtracks that people think are chiptune but they're not it's not that pure i don't have the head to use trackers like i i love that stuff and i wish i could sit down and make myself learn how to use a tracker (laughs) but i just applied my own composition method to chiptune sounds and the only way i tried to keep it a bit authentic was by limiting the amount of tracks was like you know a kick one one kick sound one snare sound one hat sound and then five or six synths so i really tried to give myself a limited palette of sounds for the game but it, it's not, not none of it's coming off hardware none of it's super authentic it's all software synths but that that's fine i <laughs> i don't i don't mind that personally but yeah i just didn't want to add in sounds that weren't really appropriate for that style of game really but so a bit a wee bit authentic i'd say a wee bit <laughs> authentic enough definitely i mean it's not like the audience are particularly going to be judging you on uh, whether you added a second kick sound. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Those people do exist. Shout out to those people. Shout out to those people. I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed. The Castlevania series is another, um, of, it's just a gaping black hole in my gaming experience, really. But people just love that, that the music of that series, don't they? It's, it's so influential and it's been through so many different um styles from quote-unquote proper chip tune and then you fast forward to symphony of the night and then big orchestral stuff i don't actually know the law uh, laws of shadow soundtrack very well but I, i'm guessing because of its era it's orchestral or whatever but uh yeah 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 what what appeals to you about the castlevania series music uh first you have to ask what appeals about castlevania and it's a guy with a whip whipping the <laughs> shit out of skeletons that is as good as video games gets that is video games I didn't I never played Castlevania when I was young. I think the first Castlevania game I played was maybe only about 10 or 15 years ago, but it was just like it's like something happening to you. It's like rock music as a video game. It was just such a intense experience for me to be like, "Yes, this kicks ass." So when I went back and started playing Castlevania games, I it there is so much music there that is all so brilliantly spooky and campy and just like rocky like the chiptune especially is like it's like listening to rock music sometimes i think it's funny actually i noticed that phantom of the opera and castlevania came out the same year so that was a big year for that kind of 
I don't know. Where did the pipe organ equals vampires thing come from? <laughs> I guess like Takata and D is the classic vampire organ tune, right? But Castlevania just obviously took that and was like, yeah, we're just going to make a whole series out of this. We're going to make 30 years worth of great games out of this. And the song I've picked here is from uh, Akumajo Densetsu, which was Castlevania 3 over here. But of course, we didn't get the VRC6 sound chip, whereas that one did. And this is like a... That game is such a masterclass of that sound chip because all those soundtracks are like NES sound plus. This one really is like... I just love how huge it sounds. One of the last songs in it when you fight Dracula is like, it's like thrash metal. It's like <laughs> some 3 4 thrash metal chip tune song. Um, the imagery and the the music in Castlevania Three is really what makes it my favorite. It's just it's just great. It's just a horror, schlocky, campy, over the top game, and the soundtrack really fits it. Um, and the track I picked from Akumajo Densetsu is Mad Forest, which is from a level where yeah, you get attacked by owls and skeletons and all that great Halloween stuff. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Let's give it a listen.
having the extra channels for the drums and like that extra bass wave just make it so heavy like because it can't it can't groove like a real funk band can groove because it's so locked in but there's something to that there's something to this like straight jacketed groove that makes it even groovier i don't know like that's interestingly that's something i tried to like capture in paradise killer is a lot of my drum programming is on the beat because i feel like there is a way to get a pocket out of just straight four four quantized music yeah absolutely and i think nez stuff does that so well like the kirby soundtrack again is another brilliant one kirby's adventure any of that late nez stuff just does stuff that's like whoa they did this on a nez and it absolutely like grooves like you say it's crazy Completely separately, I was I had been listening to an album called Voodoo by D'Angelo, which is sort of heralded now as an R&B masterpiece. And Questlove, who's the you know one of the members of the Roots, the drummer, drummed on that. And his whole thing is playing super accurately, like a drum machine. But then um, an element of his drum patterns is always off the you know really super swung so it's got this yeah. really strange sound like a like a drum machine malfunctioning or something but of course it's such a deep pocket it's such an amazing groove those i've just pulled those things together in my mind even if they bear no resemblance to each other but uh the idea of respecting absolutely the quantized you know having it having elements of the rhythm of the track absolutely locked so the listener knows what is coming in the next beat and the next bar yeah and then and then as the composer you can just play with all of the space around those locked things and have as much fun as you want basically when Steely Dan were making their album Gaucho, Gaucho is one of those classic albums that has like production hell stories about it. You know, like chewing tinfoil stuff to get mixes done. And I think there came a point where Donald Fagan was so unhappy with the drums, he gave their engineer, I think their engineer, the, the story goes their engineer was like, oh, you know, if I had enough money, I could build you a drum machine that could do what you want it to do. And he was like, how much? And the guy was like, I don't know, 100 grand. So Donald Fagan gave this guy 100 grand and he went away and built a drum machine called Wendell, which they fed all the recorded samples into it and it was programmed with like its own unique programming language. Like I've seen bits and pieces of them programming it and it is like proper, you need a degree to do this. <laughs> but that that was like, so they'd built a drum machine that they could program with their own recorded samples and a lot of the stuff on Gaucho and on uh, Donald Fagan's album The Nightfly is all programmed drums, but you would never, ever know it's programmed drums. That's amazing. And and for some reason, it makes me think of the British video game composers of the 80s, uh, like Rob Hubbard programming in hexadecimal just to make a track of music and, and doing it in, you know, lightning speed time because they had to get the the game done by 7 p.m that day or whatever it was um do you find i mean nowadays in 2020 it, it, it's it's overwhelming the amount you can do with relatively little um computing hardware 
uh, and software, and the options are endless. You know, the plugins are endless. The options of the plugins are endless. You could spend all night trying to get just one tiny bit of a compressor going, and by then all your creativity is crushed. Do you find some, maybe some comfort in some of the restrictions of video games, both the the real technical restrictions that there might be in terms of length of track or instrumentation or vibe or whatever, um, but then also the potentially the self-imposed restrictions of like, well, I want this to sound like an 80s thing, but I also want it to sound like a video game track and therefore I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to worry about that. Um, I've always played in bands and when I was in bands I was generally recording and producing them myself and they were like rock bands I was in a post-hardcore band and I'm aware of even from that scene the metal scene the rock scene what the production arms race is like and anytime you look into any of these places there's such a drive towards high fidelity sounds and I refuse to get pulled into it because it's just who can torrent the most stuff or (laughs) people who are not doing that who can spend the most money and it's it it gets so sterile because someone on a forum is like, what's the best synth? And someone says, it's this synth. And everyone gets it. And it happened this way with guitar tones, especially in drum sounds and metal, where nothing against the music, because like metal is a more technical place now than it's ever been. But you could take 20 albums and they all sound the same. They all have the same guitar tones and the same drum sounds. And like, I just refuse to get pulled into that because you're presented with an idea that this is best. We are we are striving to achieve this because this is best this is the best guitar sound this is the best drum sound a part of me that's a bit like nah i don't want to do that like i really want to push against that and just find the sounds that i like there's like because i mean i love synths and i love analog synths but you get a massive serotonin hit from hitting a button on an old keyboard and it plays a nice sound you know you type in a40 and it's like a really nice like pan again to come back to the panpipe sound you just you, you can't match that so i love like rom sampler keyboards i use the core game one a lot in this which is just such a wealth of great samples and with those old rom samplers especially just being able to layer up sounds gets you all these amazing sounds and i did use a lot of the stock m1 sounds like the m1 piano for example is in a lot of the tracks because it's such a classic 90s sound but you can just do so much with that stuff. And they're not trendy synths and they're not trendy sounds, but yeah, for Paradise Killer especially, I just wanted to pick whatever I thought would be fun to work with. What you're saying is just trust your ears, trust your own sense of taste and try not to get traps down the wrong rabbit hole. That's exactly it. That is it. I mean, it's a barrier to songwriting. Like production in a lot of ways is a barrier to actually getting music written because when you have so many options at your fingertips, it's so easy to get sucked into just finding sounds. And that has happened to me and does happen. You spend three hours finding a sound and you've not written a note of music. And when I was writing Paradise Killer, it was like, get a sound, write the music. The sounds are good. Yeah, It's like, I have the sounds. The sounds are good. Just write music with the good sounds. Because you didn't have a decade like the old rock bands to like, you didn't have a decade like Guns N' Roses or whatever to experiment with 80 different types of amps and that was the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you had like five months to just do a whole a whole soundtrack. That's important to me anyway, being able to compose economically because I've, I've limited time to work on music, but also when I did my album, for example, I think that took me almost four years from start to finish just because music stagnates for me when I don't do it. 
Mm. So uh, writing economically is super important. And that's why I love something like the M1. I feel like I'm advertising <laughs> like an ancient synth here. It's not like you can buy these new anymore, but it was just like, oh yeah, you know, I'll fire up this and it just has amazing sounds there. And I'm just going to be able to be writing music five minutes from now. But yeah, for a long time when I was writing music, it wasn't like that. It was more about finding the sounds and I don't feel like that helped me in any way. Yeah, this track I was listening... I love the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 soundtrack, especially I've been listening to yes. lately. It's just... Yes. It's massive, you know, for a start. It's flipping gigantic. It's so many tracks and it's all over the shop in terms of instrumentation and styles and composers. It's mad. Um, and I have listened to the original Xenoblade... Um, soundtrack and i went back i was listening to the xenogear stuff you know it's it's a series like the chrono games like final fantasy they're just these jrpg series that just have amazing music and just amazing musicians work on them and there's no shame in flute disco there's no (laughs) there's no shame in just having a flute rocking over incredibly kind of impassioned crazy upbeat music um i believe this track is this a recent DLC track is that right for the updated version it of the is. original game for Switch? Yeah. yeah, it is. It's from Future Connected, which is the epilogue for Switch. Um, Xenoblade Chronicles is my number one favorite video game ever. I love it. I love everything about the series, but Xenoblade is the one for me, right? And the soundtrack for the first Xenoblade is great, but it's a little reserved in places. And Xenoblade Two is when they were just like, nope, just, <laughs> yeah, go, just for go, it. go for it, like. The limiters are off, let's go for it. And then that kind of bled over into uh, Torna, the DLC for that, Torna the Golden Country. That leans into like super jazz, acoustic jazz stuff that's amazing. And then the guy that wrote a lot of the Torna music, Kenji Hiramatsu, um, he's part of Ace Plus, who do a lot of the Xenoblade music, but he sometimes gets credited on his own. And then, so this is where, this is the most recent example of where the Xenoblade series music is going. And when I heard it, I was so, so excited. I felt like I was going to cry. It's like Xenoblade has disco battle music. (laughs) And the more you listen to the whole, it has that huge synth bass. And then there's that part towards the end where it just keeps changing key and the choir comes in and it is just, like you were saying earlier, it's like, it's maximalism in a sense. Because in terms of composition style, there's so much going on, but... It's such a tight disco ensemble. And I can't believe that for that's where we are for JRPG Bell.
if anyone's following the soundtracks to um, Octopath Traveler, Final Fantasy, um, Brave Exvius, I was listening to, is it got, uh, from 2015, uh, mobile game, has an insanely good soundtrack. Just off the charts. And then you consider the uh, Monica composition house Keiichi Okabe he, uh, for, for the Nier games and he used to work on Tekken I think these are I would broadly generalise I'm totally guessing here that these are musicians who used to work on as part of these sound teams at the bigger Japanese publishers and have now kind of freed themselves and to some extent have their own kind of composition companies and their own junior staff a bit like the Hans Zimmer model where it's him but he's got you know, his army of people. I don't know whether that's right. But anyway, they all seem to be having a bunch of fun, don't they? Over at Nintendo, um, at Square Enix, these these kind of these house bands and on these, um, you know, they they say, uh, uh, I was talking to the one of the Borderlands, or he's a former Borderlands music director for Borderlands 3, Raisin Varner, and he was always saying that on the DLCs they got, to be the most free with the music and have the most fun and do the most wacky stuff. Um, and I just, I'm just i so jealous of these Japanese guys just just going crazy. I, I love, I, I, just what you're saying, actually, I love that Borderlands. All that DLC is amazing. Like it, The thing that I love about Borderlands is you play the game and it's like, great game, but then the DLC is like a whole nother thing. It's like they're just allowed to, like you were saying, do whatever they want. And yeah, the music in the DLC is so good. I love it. But aye, to get back to this... Um, it's just so good to see as a series like because I know Zen was an old series, but Xenoblade is kind of its own thing, and it's kind of a new series. And to see it do so well at Nintendo is great. And like you're saying, it's Square and at Nintendo, and even though Monolith Soft, they're not they're not for, well, they're pretty close to first party at Nintendo, I guess. But the benches are so deep at those companies with amazing composers, and it's so good to see people get to shape their own musical identity into the identity of the games. Ace Plus, for example, and Kenji Hiramatsu, they're composers that have done a ton of stuff, but to me they've done their best work on Xenoblade and continue to do their best work on each subsequent game. And it's so good to get to see music grow with a game in that Mm. way. And you you talk about Deep Bench, when you've got Yasunori Mitsuda as your, you know, centre-forward, you know, your your lead striker, and then to, to be able to back him up with as much talent as they do. I mean, it's just, it's embarrassing how good JRPG soundtracks have been over the last kind of five to 10 years. Um, But they're so vast and sometimes a bit difficult to get hold of that uh, I worry that they're passing people by a little bit, but, um, you know, something huge like Final Fantasy VII Remake is going to get people's attention and people are going to pour over the music. And that is a great soundtrack and does lots of different things. But I, I fear that, um, that, that will be remembered where Xenoblade Chronicles series and especially Xenoblade Chronicles two should probably be kind of held up as, you know, the best, some of the best of the decade alongside near automata octopath traveler. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. I think I wrote, uh, on the original notes for this track, it says extremely lavish here, but I originally wrote extremely expensive <laughs> because this music sounds so expensive. It's cinematic, but in a tuneful way. Yeah. And that is exciting to me because it pushes music in the same way that I think GRPGs push video games. And I know a lot of people don't think that GRPGs do push video games. Yeah. Because people think, you know, they're stuck in sort of 
their usual tropes and they've not really changed a lot but for you know for all its sort of mixed critical reception i think it did pretty well xenoblade 2 is a game that i love because there's so much to it the battle system is almost arcadey in a way like there is so much about positionals and about timing and it has like a rhythm game kind of flow to it i really think that a lot of japan's best work ends up in jrpgs Mm. and i know that they tend to be the most well received of japanese games over here maybe not as much anymore but yeah it's just crazy to me like you're saying how good a lot of the sound the audio and the music is in these games and i don't know because of japan's way of distributing music it's not readily accessible i let someone hear this track and they were like right i'm buying that game off the back of this track (laughs) and when their soundtracks are this good i just wish they'd be front-loading them a bit more you know for marketing purposes if anything if you look at what you're talking about earlier, Mario Kart 8 and, you know, 3D World, they were two big jazz soundtracks on the Wii U. How could you get those? Nintendo points. You had to spend your <laughs> Nintendo points, and that was the only way to get a physical copy of the CD. And that's the most Nintendo thing, right? I know that um, uh, a person we, we know and work with, Sebastian Wolf at Materia Collective, his big thing, I mean, he screams it from the rooftops to, to video games companies, get your music out to fans day one you know just get it out to them yeah don't hold it back don't be precious about it because it's a way of promoting your game as much and and it's great creative work in and of itself and and those composers deserve the credit and they deserve to uh to be celebrated and i have a feeling barry not to blow smoke up your eyes but i have a feeling you're about to uh join i know it's only been a couple of days but uh the 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 praise I've been seeing for Paradise Killer suggests to me that you're about to enter a sort of a bit of a top tier of of at least indie game composers. You know, I'd I'd love to know how that kind of feels and whether all of the the five months of cheesy synths and slap bass. I can't remember if there's there slap is bass, slap bass. But, uh, you know, strat strat guitar yep. tones, screaming saxophones. Um, does it feel like it's it's paying off? It feels like it's happening to someone else still <laughs> but i i am so ready like I've, I've been ready for a project like paradise killer for a long time but it was you know really just being patient and waiting for my opportunity to do something and you know once i got that opportunity i knew i was going to do everything i could possibly do to make it count and yeah that was getting the strat out <laughs> getting the bass out finding an amazing saxophonist I really, uh, I really just gave that soundtrack my all. Gave it everything I could. Um, you know, every second of it is considered and is something that I wanted to do to enhance the game as a whole. Because I think I said this at the start, I really feel like uh, Kaizen's vision deserved something that could enhance the whole. But it feels, it feels crazy. It feels crazy. And it's a really bright spot, I think, in a in a year that has, you know, we're recording this August 2020, uh, September 2020, um, after, you know, six plus months of coronavirus and dark times on the geopolitical stage and all of that. And uh, and Paradise Killer just is this, this, you know, incredibly bright vaporwave kind of blast of air in the face, <laughs> as it were. And it certainly gave me, you know, just put a mass. I listened to the to uh, the the lead track and also this last track we're going to close on, Last Dance XX. And I just I just smile. I just can't help it. I'm bopping along. My wife's enjoying it and she has 
completely different taste in music to me. So if you can unite us in something, then you must definitely be doing uh, something right. And uh, and I, I swear to God, you, you're definitely brightening people's lives um, in what is not necessarily the brightest of times. You're going to make me cry if you keep saying stuff like this. <laughs> Man, thank you so much for saying that. that it, it's amazing to hear stuff like this because a week ago this game wasn't out. It was just a bunch of work I'd done. And to have it out there now and have people reacting to it the way they've reacted to it is just, it just feels amazing. It is the best feeling. And I am absolutely delighted that people are enjoying it. Even if they're enjoying it a wee bit or if they absolutely love it, I am just so happy people are getting something from the music. Great stuff. Well, we're going to close now. Thank you very much, Barry, for joining me. Um, Good luck. I hope the the great reviews keep coming in and... uh, you managed your 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 mind manages to float back into your body uh, and you yes. can actually enjoy <laughs> enjoy the experience somewhat and uh, and yeah all the best let's uh, let's play out with last dance xx from paradise killer which everyone can pick up on pc and switch i imagine it's coming to other platforms later on soon it tends to be the thing and we've got next gen coming so as well so i'm sure um, the guys uh, are thinking about ports and stuff like that uh, so I definitely recommend everyone check it out grab the soundtrack on Bandcamp doesn't matter if it's on Spotify by the time you hear, us to hear it this just uh, grab it on Bandcamp anyway because it's the right thing to do <laughs>